This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My podcast, Here's the Thing, is moving from public radio, WNYC in particular, to iHeartRadio. So please keep your eyes and ears open for a formal announcement as to our exact launch date on iHeart. The show will still be called Here's the Thing. For our final two programs on WNYC, we've cut together a compilation of some of my favorite interviews from the past several years. But before we get to that, I would like to take a moment to thank Emily Botin and Adam Teicholz, my producers, for the past several seasons, as well as everyone at WNYC for the opportunity to explore my curiosity with you and speak to some of the greatest artists, musicians, actors, writers, thinkers, public policymakers, sports figures, you name it. Our roster of guests is really quite something, and I encourage you to visit our archives and download some of our older shows. And of course, a special thanks to you, the listeners, for joining me. This has been the experience of a lifetime, and thank you. They say that casting is everything, and that is no doubt true for an interview show. And we've been quite lucky on Here's the Thing, sitting down with some rather accomplished guests. My first clip is from my interview with the legendary Barbara Streisand, who talks here about how she wanted control of her films in a way that may not have been available to an actress, even one of her stature. So she decided to direct. It was something that happened during The Way We Were, where two scenes were cut out that were intrinsic to the value of the story. And it made me so crazy that they couldn't see that. That propelled it, you into it. That propelled me into it. I, I couldn't understand it. And it's hard to quarrel with a, you know, a hit movie. I don't know if it was a hit at the time, tell you the truth. It's grown to Let's be Let's say a hit. it was. <laughs> I don't know. Warren Beatty said to me once, he said, until you take ultimate responsibility and you're willing to direct the movie, you're going to be constantly frustrated. He said, you must consider that if you it don't was, have it. A... It was so delicious. And it's like, you know, when you finally have the power to control your work, you you get very humble in a sense. It's like I wanted to give power away to other people as well. You know, I would say to my stand-in, you run that course uh, with the cameraman. This is the shot, but I want you to be able to tell me where to stand. In other words, it's a feeling of such gratitude where you, you never have to raise your voice because everybody's finally listening. You don't have to get angry about anything. They weren't listening before, sometimes? Well, sometimes when I would say things as just an actress, like this is what I'm telling you, this story of right. the way we were, it went um, on deaf ears. You know, they didn't agree with me, whatever. 
But when you see something so clearly um, that's wrong to me or what could be right. or See, I had such a great time directing Yentl because I did it in England and in Czechoslovakia. In England, they're not afraid of women, powerful women, strong women, because they had a queen, they have a queen, and at the time they had the prime minister who was Margaret Thatcher. So I was shocked at the respect that I had as a first-time director. Couldn't believe it. Um, and the, the crew was so kind and just it was the most wonderful experience, I must say. And even the, um, the Czechoslovakian government was wonderful to me because I needed Jews to be in the synagogue and pray and so forth. And, <laughs> you know, it was during communist times. And they went to the Jewish community, thank God, and had them come. So I didn't have to teach them how to be Jewish, you know, how to pray. They got you some real Jews. Uh, real Jews. Yeah. It wasn't Italians dressed as Jews, <laughs> like in New York. Oh, where they have to say, well, how do you stand in a synagogue and how do you pray? And it was, it was wonderful. And also, well, you know, when you have extras in Czechoslovakia then, they didn't give them lunch. So you, the, the people would come with like bags of their lunch which broke my heart. So I would, you know, give them our food, which we never had vegetables. We had to send to London or France or Italy to get vegetables because, you know, their food diet was like hot chocolate. I loved it, of course, bread and butter and hot chocolate in the morning with whipped cream Those on are it. my kids. <laughs> yes. I was in heaven. And I wanted to be thinner, but, well, and every day I would, not every day, but every few days I would bring in pasties, you know, with that delicious dough and the meat inside. And I, we'd always have the most delicious teas that I'd bring in those cream, uh, like donuts shaped like a hot dog from Wimpy's and, you know, eat this delicious cream with the donuts. Oh my God. It was so good. You had a good time. And they, it was very sweet because the whole crew wrote a letter. That's one of my prized possessions, I must say. And they wrote this letter to the newspapers. And it said that, you know, Miss Streisand, something like Miss Streisand never raises her voice and has a smile for us every day. And it's like not the stories we've heard about her. And no newspaper would publish it. <laughs> but it figures. It's like Hillary Clinton. As you said, the upside of that experience with Yentl was working in a culture where the power of women was just accepted. And I'm, I'm crestfallen, to say the least, about what happened here, not just because this guy won, but I really do think misogyny and well, the rejection of women in power. Well, in 1984, I did get some sort of award from Women in Film directing Yentl, and a lot of my speech was about women against women because... The reviews of Yentl from women were vicious. You know, in other words, they didn't even talk about this celebration of womanhood, that a woman could not only, you know, make dinner and have babies, but she could have an intellect. She could want to study, be something more do than... Do what men do. Huh? Do what men do. Do what men do, just equality, you know? So to read a review that said her, she wore a design, in the New York Times, she wore a designer yarmulke. Now everything, every piece of clothing in that movie was authentic. That yeah. same year, there was the film directed by Ingmar Bergman, Fanny and Alexander. They wore the same yarmulke, but nobody attacked that film. I love detail. So I would, you know, for years I would, do research about Polish Jews, about these Jews, that Jews, everything, the Yivo Institute in New York, um, uh, talking to scholars, studying Talmud, uh, just to bring that, because I do believe that when you study like that and do the research, you don't have to act that. It's like the camera picks up the truth, even just behind your eyes, in the sound of your voice, whatever it is. Mine, you know, I had this wonderful uh, shot, I thought, 
because it cuts from a chicken coop to me sitting behind the bars up, separated from the men in the shul. And that shot was attacked by this woman critic. Janet Maslin, her name was. Now, she could attack my lip sync, because that's true. I'm a terrible lip synker. I can't do it because when I did movies like Funny Girl or Hello, Dolly, you know, they record the soundtrack three months before you shoot. And I have to be in the moment as an actor. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I actually perform it. So that's why when I did the movie uh, Star is Born, it's all real. It's all, um, I had a You didn't truck. want to replicate. I did not want, I needed to be free to be in the moment. So we recorded on the spot. What do you call that? Live. It was all live. And then what I would do is, um, because I had final cut on that movie, I could control those things. Um, we would shoot the close-ups first. So where the performance really counted. And then I would just choose it right on the spot. Okay, I think... And I would do about one to four takes. You know, all these stories about me, like I do right. millions of takes, most of them are false. And so let's say I would take take three, you know, and then move the cameras back to do the wider shots. And match to that and match take. Because you didn't have to see me close, you know, not doing the lip sync good. I did a documentary film... About Can, it's ostensibly about Can and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. We corner him at a, at a, at a yeah. hotel yeah, here. Yeah, I think I saw it. Yeah, and Jimmy Toback and I did this thing called Seduced and Abandoned, and we get Gosling at the Beverly Hills Hotel or the Bel Air Hotel, I yeah. should say. Anyway, long story short is he has this beautiful explication of how agonizing it is to shoot films, and just in that kind of Arthur Murray by numbers way we have to shoot a well, match to this and yeah. match to this. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. It can't be fresh, and it's painful. No, and that's why I love long takes, because I think I'm from the theater, and we had to do a whole show, right? So I don't like pieces. I mean, you, I, the fun of directing, to me, is designing the shot, the camera, accommodating the actors. So the actors, there's a lot of scenes in Yentl that you can see like this. They're all in one move, practically. In other words, we come in through a door, and I'm in, in the foreground, let's say, but he who's following me, the, my lead actor, uh, who was Mandy Patinkin at mm -hmm. the time, and he still is, <laughs> but, um, you know, we see him standing there, and then he comes forward, and I sit down. He becomes, he's standing up, but the camera never moved, but you see everything. Then the camera moves as we're together, but it doesn't cut. And then he has, you know, when, when he leaves me, you see him go out the door, he slams the door, and the camera moves in a little bit as I'm thinking about it. That's the scene. But it's all, what's fun about that is that we're all on our toes. You can't make a mistake. In most of these shots that I do that, there's no coverage. Like the, Woody. Huh? Like, oh, is like that Woody right? and Scorsese, the, the greatest ones, there's very little coverage. The actors because, play the scene in the frame. They really right. play it. That's right. Now, now, in the time that you made films, the many years you've made films, the successful acting and not directing, successful as a director and producer and all those things, were there people that you wanted to work with? Were there people you sat there and said, God, I'd love to make a film with that person? Because you've been in such a privileged place. And had all these people available to you, was there a director that you dreamed of working with that you didn't get to work with? Well, Ingmar Bergman is a person that contacted me to do a remake of The Merry Widow. And I was so excited, you know, and I came to um, Sweden and we embraced. And it was this wonderful embrace, you know. I mean, he, I can't explain what, that, what that's like. It was just, he, he sort of understood me. And I understood him without any words. And the first act of that screenplay was fantastic. I mean, very bawdy, uh, kind of shocking. I loved it, you know. So uh, then, and I have letters now. I, I forget things until I have to go into my archives and look at this stuff. Letters from him and notes that I wrote back to him talking about this film. And what happened? The second act, you know, he says, we're going to be collaborators. 
And the second act was not very good, I thought. It was like, like did you ever see Amadeus? I'm sure you did. Sure. The first act was extraordinary to me in the movie, and the second act was, I don't know, just somehow repetitious. It it didn't go far enough in the story, you know? And that's the way I felt about this. And all of a sudden, it was gone. The collaboration was over. We never made the film. And I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, the fact that I didn't like certain things in the second act. That he liked. Well, he never defended it. It was like, you don't think that's right, and so... But I would have loved to work with Bertolucci and Scorsese. You know what I did? I realize this now in looking back at my life. I turned down Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore. I turned down a lot of films, actually. Because sure. I was lazy. I'm basically... I'm, I'm a dichotomy here. A dichotomy. Lazy and... Um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, restless. Restless, maybe, yeah. Like wanting to create. If and we did a I, soap I, about you, it would be called The Lazy and the Restless. But what anyway, do you have? You, I'm joking. Oh, no, that's a Rather very good the title. Young, the Lazy no, and the yeah, Restless yeah, yeah, would be yeah, your yeah, daytime yeah, drama. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I love to take a vacation and do nothing. I like to have no appointments. I, mean, that, I think that's a condition in my mind of people who have tremendous, not so much financial success, but creative success. I mean, there's a famous actress who I won't name. Wait, you know what? Do you want to take a sip of soup? on your? Bring her her soup. Do you want soup too? I'll, I'll have a soup. I mean, we who can... Who might say no? Well, I mean, this is a... I'm podcast, Irish. It's bad right? luck to say no to soup. Is that right? In Ireland. Oh, dear. I just made that up. <laughs> oh, just put that over here. Oh, see, I just brought this uh, table from the back. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And we need another table maybe over here. Sure, because this is miso soup. Don't worry about me. I'm great. I mean, in other words, people know we eat. Right. Right? So if they hear us, no it's okay. Good, 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 good. Because I always like to we'll eat. Cut out the eating. Oh, really? No, you, no, you won't. Mmm. That is delicious, isn't it? That was my interview with Barbara Streisand. Sometimes the task is to convince some of our iconic guests to sit down with me. Other times the task is simply to find them. In the case of my next clip, Joe D'Alessandro proved to be more than a little elusive. But once we got the star of many of Warhol's early films and photography to join us, he was gracious, forthcoming, and funny, like when he talked here about his early days as a male model. The criminal guy who was the modeling agency, what, how did that play out? Well, he, he introduces me to this person that wants to, that does these, uh, these photographs, and they said, you know, look, Joe, rub this oil on you, and it starts out real, you know, real easy, you know, it's nothing... Nothing that's too frightening to a person that's, you know, being first introduced to it. It's just, you know, take your clothes off and stand over there. and Nude. Yeah. And for you, did you feel that in that world you had a nose for people you could trust and not trust? Yeah. yeah right so when the away. guy says oil up and stand over there naked, you knew you were cool. No yeah, nothing's gonna, move on nothing was going to happen there. Yeah. Did you find it weird? Yeah, I thought it was real weird, but I was going to get $50, a whole yeah. $50. That was a lot of money back then, yeah. you know, and I thought, wow, $50 was standing there. So, yeah, Joe, make put your arm up like, like you're making a muscle, Joe, you know. And shortly after that, I have a fight with the guy that introduced me to this, the modeling people, because he had this scam that he wanted to do. He wanted to blackmail somebody. He wanted me to do something. And I said, I ain't doing that. And all sorts of stupid shit, you know. Wow. So I got angry, and he got he got violent. He was an ex-con that was, you know, going to show his toughness. He was, was he tough? Not to me. Right. You know? Okay. Anyway, he broke a bottle to come at me, and I knocked the bottle out of his hand. It went on the ground and broke. And... uh he uh, 
You did a little yeah. dance with him. Yeah, he fell on the glass and got all cut up, you know. Well, well actually, I, I threw him on the glass. <laughs> And he got all cut up. No, no, he fell on the glass. Yeah, and, and You were holding so, him down. You were trying to help him. He tried to press charges against you? Yeah, he tried to do all this nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, we went to court, and they reached my father and say, you know, you, your son's out here. You, oh, you need to send him back, you know, put him on a plane, and I'll send you the money. Where'd you live when you got to New York? Well, I stayed with him for a week and then went out on my own again. And was the plan when you were back in New York well, to pick oh, up the modeling I, thing again? Did you say this is good money? Well, I, I never thought about it, about the modeling thing. You know, it wasn't something that I, I knew anybody. I, I had a couple of friends in New York that introduced me to other people. And and then one day one of these friends uh, said, hey, I know this person that's uh, making these Campbell soup can you know, makes the Campbell soup. And I was thinking <laughs> we were going to eat some soup. Which I was all for. You're going to go to the Campbell Soup Factory. Yeah, whatever. In Pennsylvania. I had no idea where it was. <laughs> He's going to take a picture of you oiled up. He's going well, to give you a case of there, soup. Well, when we get there, there's somebody sitting behind a, a camera Shit. reading a newspaper. So I couldn't see who it was or what it was, you know. But they wanted to introduce me to this Campbell Soup Andy Warhol guy that I had, you know, didn't know who Andy Warhol was. So, you know, before I met them, I... I had married a uh, young lady, my first my first wife. How old were you? Seventeen? Uh, no, I had to be eighteen then. Okay. So but it was uh Why'd you get married when you were eighteen? Seems like freedom is a premium for you. Why'd you get married? My father was dating her mother and uh my father wanted to she got herself pregnant. My father said, you know, you should take we should take this person and he should own up to his responsibility of his kid. You were the father? She no, I wasn't. Oh, you all she got, got okay. pregnant with somebody else. And oh. My father said, we'll take him to court, you know, and, and I, I kept telling my father, you shouldn't do that, man. You shouldn't push her to do that because he's going to come in with a bunch. This is Brooklyn, you know, and he can come with a bunch of guys saying we all slept with her and nothing's going to ever come Prove back. Prove which one of us is the father, yeah. Yeah, that's back before DNA and all that other shit. Right. Thank God for DNA. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you, that, just, you decided to marry her? I decided to marry her and give the kid my name, you know. What kind of work did you do then? I was a, a bookbinder. I went to, I, actually, I was assembly line. I didn't do anything except... In the city? Yep. Yep, in Manhattan. Who, why that job? Because my uncle ran the ran the shop. It was his business. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if it was his business, but he, he, ran, he ran the shop. So was there a part of you when you're in Jersey and you're bookbinding and you got a 16-year-old bride who's got a kid and we're not quite sure who in the Brooklyn gang is really the father? Do you sit there and go, I miss standing there oiled up in a room naked getting 50 bucks from these guys I don't know. Did you miss that? Yeah. And then you go, and then you go meet the guy who's behind the newspaper who makes the soup, who's going to make you soup for lunch. Yeah. What happened there? He drops the newspaper. What happens? Obviously, he became very fond of you very quickly. Well, it wasn't him. It was the guy that was standing to the side of the camera and giving all the instructions to everybody. And that was Paul Morrissey. So he's the one that suggested that I be in the film because he always he was this character that asked everything about your life. And I had told him, you know, in junior high, I, I had played on the wrestling team. He says, oh, that's a good idea. We'll have you do that with Undine. You'll, you'll teach him wrestling. So Let's film that. We'll film that. <laughs> but describe Morrissey then. Morrissey, real smart, real educated. He, had, uh, he was a Fordham graduate. He was a social worker before... Uh, in in New York City, where he really saw these uh, strange people that he had to, you know, work with. Uh, so he had plenty of great stories, and he he shot uh, these films uh, that were shot. They were silent films. I saw. I watched a couple of them. They were pretty good films. Uh, were you a movie goer then? You like movies? Yeah. Oh, I was. A you movie like movies? Goer. Oh, I love really? movies. 
didn't want to be in them. I just liked watching them. But when you watched the movies that Morrissey and or Warhol made, they weren't like movies you saw in the theater. Well, right? when I, yeah, I thought they were a joke. I thought they, well, well, when we were shooting this one thing, the soup day, we, they, were shot, they asked me to be in the thing and I shot this small scene and they came over to me after we were done and uh, they asked me to f- sign a release. I said, you're not gonna, this is just for fun. Nobody's gonna ever see this. This is, this is just, I thought just like a whole movie. I didn't think they were gonna, you know, ever show this anywhere. I thought it was a joke. Because what was happening there was, you know, pretty silly and it wasn't, you know, anything I ever saw in a theater. It was unfamiliar. Yeah. yeah, really. I signed the release thinking it would never be released and, and then later on they called me and, uh, asked if I would uh, allow them to photograph me for the advertising of this film that they, you know, they shot with me. First Which day, film? Before, the, this movie that was supposed to be a 24-hour movie that turned into Loves of Undine. They cut it into a small... That was your first movie? That was my first movie with them. But before that was ever released, they had called me up, Andy did, to ask me to be in another movie. And then he put Paul on the phone, who told me, yeah, Joe, we're, we're, we're going out to Arizona to shoot a, a Western. Would you like to be in the Western? I said, sure. <laughs> That'd be great. I said, but you got to pay me what I, what I make at the bookbinding place because I can't take off. I'm, I'm married now. I got to take care of my <laughs> all this bullshit. Pay Did they her. pay you? Yeah. About what I was making. They paid you exactly what you made at the bookbinding Probably, place. yeah. Not a nickel more than that. <laughs> They were cheap. They were always cheap. They didn't want to pay somebody too much, and then somebody else asked for the same thing, you know. Isn't it amazing you sit in a room uh, back in 1967 with a bunch of people who later on, the soup can guy would sell his paintings for tens of millions of dollars. (laughs) Yeah. He becomes one of the richest artists in history. Did you have an artistic sensibility where you thought that these guys were, or you just, as you said, it was just unfamiliar and silly? Well, in the beginning, you know, it all wasn't for me. And and Andy's art, you know, we all participated in in making the Andy art. They had said, you know, after we had shot the cowboy movie and we came back, I thought that was it, go back to bookbinding. And, you know, I called uh, Paul, asked about the Western, and uh, he had told me that he had a job for me at the factory. And... I said, okay, you know, I'd be happy to give up what I was doing, you know, do something there. And uh, I went down to the factory, and that was the day that Andy was shot when I showed up to the factory to work there. Sometimes at the onset, I wonder where the conversation might go, and by the end I realized I could have talked with my guest for hours. Such is the case with Joe D'Alessandro. Thank you, Joe. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer... 
Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. My next clip is from my interview with Elaine Stritch. Elaine had quite a career, and toward the end of it, she played my mother, Colleen Donaghy, on the television series 30 Rock. When the show was over, Elaine announced she was leaving New York, and we were lucky enough to catch up with her before she relocated home to Michigan. And if you know Elaine, it comes as no surprise that the interview could just stop at any given moment. Where is my black bag, Alec? Hunter? I need uh, I need uh, orange juice. Hunter, come in, please. Can we send Hunter in here, please, with yeah. the uh, yeah, yeah, provisions? Yeah. Hunter Ryan Herdlicka, who accompanied Elaine to the studio, came through the door, juice in hand. I need some orange juice. Yes, my right here. diabetes there is. is kicking up. There we go. I need Hunter, the, my good man. Hunter's here now. With yeah, the Hunter's juice. here. All's right with the world. Okay, we're, how about a glass? Yes, that's a clean... Water? Uh, we'll get him a clean... We'll go, we'll go get him a clean... It's glass. all right. It's all right if you just empty that glass. It's heaven. I need some orange juice. You know that I'm diabetic. Yes, of course. I think the world knows by now. The world knows by now. The world. (laughs) Okay. You know what I quoted the other day, a line of my father's that really is so naughty and just so much fun? Here's looking up your old address. (laughs) Isn't that a great line? And he said it with no, he just, that was it. Nothing on it. Yeah, that's right. All right, I'm going to drink this I now. I bring the oranges okay. now so we don't have some event here. That's cool. Okay. All right. So now that you've had your orange juice and your brain freezes over, uh, Kirk Douglas, what was the show? Do you remember now? Woman Bites Dog. <laughs> <laughs> that Woman. orange juice is a miracle elixir. I want to be a case of that orange juice. It's Woman got all kinds Bites of- Dog. Woman Bites Dog. Yeah. What'd you play in that? If you say, I played I'm his kick girlfriend, you. You played who his girlfriend. he lived with. I didn't even know what that phrase meant. You were a floozy. Well, no, I wasn't. A, I just, but I lived with him right. and I wasn't married to right. him. I didn't know what that meant. What do you remember about Kirk Douglas? Oh, my God. I loved him. Oh, God. I mean, I loved him too. I loved him and what an actor. Oh, I my loved God. He him. Was, and he's one of the few men who was as great an actor as he was a star. Oh, he was wasn't he? A, he was a great actor. He was a great actor. Oh, he was a great actor. I loved him. And he loved me. He flipped over me. I've known him for years. And he took me halfway away for the weekend, and then I discovered that I shouldn't go. He took you? Wait, halfway I'm sorry. away to Palm Springs, and then I said, I shouldn't be going. So what did you do? You hit, like, what? So like, he said, oh, you hit, like, I'll Redlands? take you Where were you, Redlands? I don't know. We were halfway to Palm Beach. Palm Springs. Springs. So you're driving east from And we were driving for the weekend. And you decided you didn't want to... Well, I said, I'm I'm getting nervous because what do you want me to do when we get up here? And And Kirk Douglas... Oh, Elaine. He knew I was a virgin, so he was dealing with that. Right. So what was the first leading role you had on Broadway? Big role. Take more orange juice so you can remember. <laughs> um, the big part, oh. The big part. Big, big part I had was uh, Angel in the Wings, which was a review. Hardest thing in the world to do, a review. 
And what they, kind of review? Like New Faces? Was it like Leonard yeah, Sillman? Yeah, uh, sketches. Right. One sketch like a Leonard after. Kind and of I was the uh, big busted, you know, girl in the uh, in the bedroom. I was the uh, I was the the piece was, on the side. Yeah. You were, so you, I, so that here was, you, isn't it amazing? You were this virginal, you went to soccer cur, and you went to finishing school. Yeah, and I played. And as soon as you're out, God is just tempting you. He's telling yeah. you, Marlon Brando on one side of you, and Kirk Douglas is revving up the convertible to take you to Palm Springs, <laughs> and you're the floozy here, and you're the piece on the side, the busty femme fatale. But what I was really doing is learning my lines to the play or to the television or to the... I was really loving acting. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved pretending. I just loved it. It was being somebody other than I was, was my idea of a good time. Was part of that process for you learning from people you worked with or you admired? Did you look at other people and say, because I've had that. I mean, I'm not going to say I had it every tell day. Tell me, tell me. Well, like Merman, when you worked with Merman, did you learn from Merman? Did you, did you? Yeah. Did, no, you didn't. I Why? did her part. Right. I did her you, part. Right, you there understood. There was no question about that. Right. So she was not And somebody, I loved her. Sure. Everybody loved everybody, but I know how to do that. And I was so frightened and so terrified, and I was so good in it. Right. Did you feel that she was of of that type where just Merman is Merman? She goes out and just does... Oh, she made a, you know, so long, she'd say goodbye to me from the wings on the my opening night and then go sit in the first row. She scared me to death. Really? She's a tough broad. But when I got to the end of Call Me Madam, it was mine. Yeah. You felt that way. Uh-huh. Absolutely. When do you think you became you? The moment I started to rehearse Merman's part, I was doing the new Merman, the new everything. Yeah. That's when you became you. Yeah. So doing the piece, doing Call Me Madam, is when you felt things change for you. You felt you were on to something. I, not necessarily. No? No, everything I did, everything I did was, you know. But when you do a show, Elaine Stritch at Liberty, when you do a show that is a memoir of your career. Oh, yeah. And it is enormously successful. When did you think in your life, when did you reach a point in your life that you felt you were someone who could write a memoir about your life, that you thought it was interesting enough? When did you cross a line and say, God, I've done a lot of stuff? Yeah, I was convinced by this producer who said, who saw me perform at a Judy Garland special at Carnegie Hall. And what I did was tell Judy Garland stories. And I told three It was a tribute to Judy. As a tribute to Judy. She's gone by this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long gone. And oh boy, I really did know her very well. From Where did you first meet her? Party. At a party someplace, I don't know. And I loved her so. When I tried out one of my stories on Judy Garland, I mean, she tried out one of hers. I said, Judy, I've got an idea, and I sincerely did. I said, I've got a great idea. Why don't we tour MAME? I said to Judy Garland. And she says, divine. She said, that sounds great. I said, but here's the good idea, Judy. When I do MAME, I go to bed early. And when you do MAME, you go to bed early. And then the other one does Vera. So you're going to switch on and off? Yeah, absolutely. And she bought that idea? She's listening now. And she's saying... Okay, 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 and she's counting up the songs, what songs she has, what, you know. And after this long pause, she looks at me and says, what about matinees? And I thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard in my whole life that Judy Garland wanted to know, what about matinees? That's how she carefully, she wanted her her career planned so she could be able to get loaded when she wanted to and you know it was her way of treating 
a very serious discussion. So you did a tribute thing where you told stories about her. And that's when someone pitched yeah. the idea to you of doing a memoir of your career. That's right. V- vaguely, what and year was that? And they said, you tell a story to an audience the like of which I have never heard. That's true. I was that the opening night at the public when At Liberty opened at the public. And everyone who was had a pulse in New York, everyone who was alive that night came to that opening at the public. Everybody in the theater came. They went crazy. They went crazy. It's lovely. God, it's lovely. Success is lovely. It's so hard, and it's such hard work, but it's so gratifying. What's the hardest thing about it for you? What's been the hardest thing? Do you find it hard just to have the that fear, much focus on the it? fear. The fear of what? That you won't be able to perform? The fear that I'm just going to forget, and I'm going to not not so much forget, but it's the fear. It's the fear. And that was when I was not drinking at all, and I didn't drink anything to get my talent out. But all my life, I had. Have you ever done a show? I'm sure you've done countless shows. Have you ever done a show where you're sitting backstage thinking, what am I doing here? How did I get myself into this? Or were you always engaged by what you were doing? I was always engaged. Always. By, always. You never took a I part. was leading up to it or coming down. You know, I... I was trying to get it behind me. You never regretted doing anything? Never? No. Wow. That's incredible. No, I never, never regretted doing anything on the stage. Never? Uh Uh-uh. How was that possible? Uh, Because I just won every time I walked out there. Right. You know that old expression about I own the stage. Right. That was from my interview with the incomparable... Elaine Stritch. Some of the musicians I've interviewed have had tough lives, during which they created some of the greatest music the world has ever heard. The next clip is from my interview with David Crosby, the self-described mischievous kid who started singing folk songs at age six on his way to his remarkable career. Did you go to boarding school? I did, yeah, Kate. What What was that like? Uh, What were you like? (laughs) (laughs) Were you always mischievous? Always. And it got me in a shitload of trouble. Why do you think that is? I don't know, but it's definitely true. I got thrown out of almost every school I was ever in, including Kate. What was music in your life then? Music came early and well. Uh, My mom sang in choirs. My dad liked music. He could play a mandolin. My brother played guitar. We used to—here's an interesting thing. When, when we were growing up in the 50s, when TV started to really happen, we didn't have a TV. So we sang folk songs out of the Fireside Book of Folk Songs, and that was where it started. Did I, anybody tell you then you could sing? Did they say you're a good singer? They did notice that I was singing harmony when I was six. And they went, huh? What's you know? the first instrument you played? Guitar. My brother turned me on to guitar. When you were how old? I guess maybe 10. What's the best time, you think, to teach? My son is two and a half years old. He's going to be three in June. He's obsessed with simulating playing the guitar. He actually has a band with my wife. He calls her Trista, (laughs) and he's Mr. Pants. Mr. Pants. He'll turn to my wife literally. I've got it on video. He'll turn to my wife and go, Trista, what are we going to play now? He's two and a half. Don't let him be a musician. We want him to no, be. No, it's a terrible idea. He'll never have a job. Actually, let him. Do you think that if you didn't, but when you say that, do you think if you hadn't made it as big as you made it, you wouldn't have stuck with it or you would have stayed with it just because you loved it? I would have because I love it. Right. I love it so much, Alec. I can't tell you. I love singing. I'm good at it, but that's not really it. It's There's a joy to singing in and of itself. And it's. It's an elevating thing. It's, it's totally freaking wonderful. It's very tough for me now, man, because I'm really old and getting on the road. It's exhausting. A, yeah, well, it beats the crap out of me, yeah, because you never get more than four hours sleep in a row, and then in the middle of that, you hit an expansion joint, and bang, you're awake oh. again. And, you know, and you're eating terrible food in restaurants. When, when did you, when you left home, you, you didn't go to college? No, I went one year, and— You went to— uh, city College in Santa Barbara, which is now, oddly enough, the, the highest-rated city college in the country. It was interesting and good, and I, I had one really good teacher who hooked me up about some really interesting things about semantics and language and how— No, you weren't studying music then? No, I never Were you in did. a band then? 
No, not yet. I was I was bussing tables at the local coffee house because it, uh, as a busboy, they would let me sing harmony with the guy who was being paid to sing. And what was the first band you were in? Les Baxter's Balladeers. Les Baxter, you know, band leader guy. He had seen the uh, Christy Minstrels, which uh, uh, that guy who Sparks, whatever his name was, he had. He, I think he had three of them out there. Bands like that, all named the same. You know, just it was a commercial operation. It was like, really lame. But it was put food on the table. My brother and I were in that, and then I ran into Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark and. Where? At Troubadour. In L.A.? Yeah, bar at the Troubadour. Right. And uh, they were singing, and it was good. And the songs were, you know, Gene was a pretty good writer. And uh, So when those two have a—they had an act called— uh, They didn't have an act. They were just act. playing. They were just playing. In the bar. You know, Roger had been a musician for a while. Right. And successful and played with other bands, Limeletters, Chad Mitchell Trio, a bunch of different people. So he knew what he was doing. And he knew that Gene was talented and, and that this stuff had value because it sounded a lot like Beatles songs. And uh, so I started singing harmony to him. They said, what's your name? And uh, that worked out really well. It was a, a good band, simple, good. Roger was extremely good at, at taking Bob Dylan's songs and turning them into pop records. And you covered Tambourine Man? Yeah, that was our first hit. Well, what did you learn about bands in your first band? What was that experience like? I learned that that I had a lot to learn. I was just a young punk, and I really had no idea how to actually work with people and and a- accomplish the aim that I wanted to. I had an experience early on when I was young. My mom took me to see a symphony orchestra in a park, free show, there in L.A. And they tuned up, and they got ready, and then he started the piece, and it was this huge, beautiful wave that hit me. I didn't know anything was like that. You know, a symphony orchestra, hugely powerful thing. Mm. And it freaked me out. And the thing I, I, I realized, even as a kid, the power came from they were all doing it together. I can't believe you just said that. It's the truth. And it really and it penetrated. So I've always wanted to be in a band. Yeah. Always. I, I love cooperative effort. Competitive effort winds up at war. Cooperative effort winds up at a symphony. I'm, I'm, I'm watching Tom Petty's band play at a benefit, and a friend was with me. I turned to him and I said, do you see what I'm seeing? My friend said, what? And I said, they're all doing the same thing at the same time. Bingo. I said, they're all in service to and feeding. You know, in my business, not everybody's doing the same thing. They're kind of doing their own thing, kind of jerking off in the no. corner there. You know, Petty's band was doing the same thing. Yeah, it was really, really very, very cool. Do you find in a band, does somebody always need to be in charge? Does somebody need to be the boss? It can go both ways. In The Birds, Roger was definitely the leader of the band. And that worked? Well, yeah, he knew a lot more than we did. Right. And he's also an extremely talented guy and a good singer. And uh, so it, it wouldn't, you know, I challenged it at every turn, but he was the leader of the, of the band. Uh, CSNY, none of us was willing to admit the, the, anybody else was the leader. We, it, it was and probably still is one of the most competitive situations in the history. Uh, and uh, Why? Egos. Really, just that. Simple. In, in, in spite of all the incredible success you've had, I mean, who's, when you think of people, when you think of men harmonizing in a group, the first people that come to mind are the three of you. Why do you think that that didn't bring them any comfort? I don't think that's what they went in for. And I don't think they realized exactly how good it was. We did really like each other when we started. And we were thrilled, you know, by each other's songs. So you leave the birds and, 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 and Stills leaves Buffalo Springfield uh-huh. and they bring you with them? Like well, he, Springfield sort of fell apart. Neil right, left, right. which is kind of his M.O. <laughs> right. And uh, Stephen was very appealing guitar player and singer. I mean, it's really good. Yeah. Remember how well he played acoustic guitar back then? Beautiful. Pretty stunning. And so I started hanging out with him. And then Cass uh, introduced me to Graham. But when Nash leaves the Hollies, the Hollies are doing very well. Aren't yeah. they very successful? Yeah. I Why sh- does he leave the Hollies? I stole him. You did? I went how to, how I did went that to, work? I went to London and I told him he should quit. And you t- how did you do that? He should quit. Why? Because he could join us. He was at a very crux point with the Hollies. They wanted to do an album of Dylan covers. 
Now, there are bands that should do Dylan covers, and there are bands that should not do Dylan covers. <laughs> and that was one of the bands that should not do Dylan covers. And they were ignoring his songs. He had already written Lady of the Island, and they didn't get it. The beautiful song. He'd already written Right Between the Eyes. They didn't get it. He, he was already outgrowing them. So I walked in, and I said, hmm, this is pretty ordinary. And I was funnier than they were, and I, was, I knew more than they did, and I did it on purpose, and they'll probably never forgive me. But it made a great sound. We, the three of us, when we heard each other sing, it was, it was spectacular. But bands get together, and you're in love with each other, and it's all wonderful, and it's exciting. And then it devolves. And 40 years later, it's turn on the smoke machine and play your heads, and you don't even like each other. You don't ride the same bus. You do not hang out. And you are competing with the other guys. So it's easier to do the touring and get on stage and get that on and get that over with than it is to be – you don't go into a studio anymore because that's more intimate. That died quicker, yeah. The money's so good on the road in a band like that, you know, uh, that you you want to stay there. It means big crowds, big places, big deal. You get new. Yeah. But it got to the point where it's no fun. Is it about when it starts to crack, when it starts to shift, is it because of songwriting? No one's getting – Oh, that too. Um, no one wants to sing my songs. I want my songs on that album. Yeah, there's that. Who's the decider? Did you guys acquiesce to producers? No, we uh, we always produced our records, and uh, and our we had what we call the reality rule. You'd come into the room, and we'd sit down by our, just us, nobody else, and uh, you'd sing each other a song. And they either liked it or they didn't. And uh, if they liked it, you know, then we'd start figuring out how to sing it. And these are hugely talented guys, man. They, they came with a lot of stuff. So before it was the four of you, the three of you was basically pretty good. Yeah, it was okay, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, Neil's nickname is sometimes. It's CSN sometimes Y. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, and when it would be CSN Y, it was a lot bigger. That you got to know that. That's what, the reason that CSN Y is always Neil's decision is because if there's twenty thousand people in the stadium, Neil put ten of them there. That's the truth. Right. And so he's, he's the one that's, that's said that it's done. He doesn't want to do that anymore. And I don't think he needs to do CSMI. I don't think he'll ever see it again. When you say he sometimes and he comes and goes, is that his nature in all things? He just has a tough time committing to anything? No, he's on his own path. Right. And he does not relinquish that ever under any circumstance. And uh, he does not want to be dependent on anybody else and probably doesn't want to split the money. I don't know. I've never asked him. But I I know he—I think, you know, I had to come to this decision. It's a very hard decision, man. This is a very hard time for us. I don't know if you know this, but streaming pretty much destroyed our earning power. Mm -hmm. It took half, at least half of our earning power away from us Mm -hmm. because they, folks, they don't pay us for records anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got that deal passed us. And they, it, it's sort of as if you worked your job and they paid you a nickel for every two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's the proportion is drastically tiny. So with Neil gone and CSN still earning but really frozen in place and really unpleasant. I mean, incidents that I, I will not tell you about, but violently bad a carefully chosen word my thanks again to david crosby We presented several of our shows live, and one of my favorites was with director William Friedkin. Thank you very much. Good evening. Recorded at the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival. Friedkin is one of the most entertaining storytellers I've ever sat down with. Here he is following a screening of The French Connection. We then sent it to Jane Fonda, who sent us all the the same telegram that said... Why would I want to be in a piece of capitalist rip-off bullshit like this? Now, I've seen her since, and she doesn't remember having sent that. 
but I haven't. That was her response. I don't know how she really felt, but that was her response. Well, she was honest. She was honest. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ellen Burstyn was hawking me all the time. I, I had seen the last picture sure. show, but I didn't know Ellen Burstyn from Cloris Leachman. I didn't know which was which. But Ellen said to me, do you believe in destiny? Has anyone ever asked you that before? Uh, no. Well, she was the only one who ever asked me that. And I said, well, I guess I believe in... She said, I'm destined to play this part. I said, look, the studio wants Jane Fonda, Anne Bancroft, or Audrey Hepburn. This was all going on. She said, I don't care. I'm destined to play this part. And it came about that she was the last person standing. And so we cast her against the wishes of the studio. They did not, they wanted a big star for that. Um, then we cast Stacy Keach to play Father Karras. He was a great, is a great actor. He was the go-to Eugene O'Neill actor on Broadway. And what happened? I went to New York and Jane I- Jane Fonda got to him. Maybe it was that. No, but no, we cast him. I went to New York and I saw the opening night of a play called That Championship Season. And it was uh, written by a man named Jason Miller. Never heard of him. Uh, I thought the play was great. It was, it really reeked of lapsed Catholicism. It was a play about a group of high school guys who won a championship under their coach, uh, but cheated to win. And they were suffering this guilt. And it, the stage was just filled with Catholic guilt, I felt. So I, I said to my casting director, who is this guy that wrote this? I'd love to talk to him, just to talk to him. It turned out that he had studied for the priesthood three years at Catholic University in Georgetown. He came up to meet me and in, in, uh, I was staying at the Sherry Netherland Hotel and I had the flu and I had a lot of pills. He thought I was a pill freak and uh, I thought he was a drunk and he didn't know what the hell he was doing up there. And I asked him a lot of questions about studying for the priesthood and stuff. And it was a horrible meeting. And I went back to Los Angeles and about Two weeks later, as we're starting to prepare the picture, he called me at Warner Brothers. And he said, hey, you know that, that book you were telling me about that you're gonna film, that exorcist? He said, I said, yeah. He said, I am that guy. He said, I am that character. I said, well, you're not. Stacy Keach is that, he's gonna play the part. He said, I'm telling you, man, I am this guy. And he said, have you ever done anything like a, a screen test? I said, no, I've, I've never shot a screen test. And what's the point? I told you we've cast this. He had never made a film, never been in a movie, only played very small acting roles in a road, road companies. He was delivering milk in Flushing, New York, when he wrote Championship Season. And um, so he said, you got to test me. You have to give me a screen test. I said, why? What a waste of time. He said, man, I'm telling you. So I had great respect for him as a writer. I said, you want to shoot a screen test? Okay, you come out here on your own. You get out here. It was like, uh, let's say it was uh, a, a Tuesday. I said to him, get out here by Thursday and I'll shoot a, a screen test with you and I'll take it out of the camera and give it to you so you can show it to your kids. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, I can't get out there Thursday. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I don't fly. He said, I'll take the train. I'll be out there in a week. All right. So <laughs> I set up an empty stage with a great cinematographer named Bill Fraker. Right. And I had cast Burston, and I said, look, we're going to do a test of this guy, and let's do the scene where you first 
meet him in a little park in Georgetown and you tell him that you think your daughter is possessed. And she said, what, why are we doing this? You've got a great actor. I said, I don't know why we're doing this. And I swear to God, I didn't. We shoot the test, no sets, just Bill Fraker lighting in an empty studio. And they did that scene, one take. And then I had Ellen uh, interview Jason with the camera over her shoulder on him, where she just asked him questions about his life, who he was, what his background was, his family, everything. And then uh, I shot a very tight close-up of him saying the mass, but not saying it the way you used to hear it, maybe you still do in church, where the priest just rattles it off, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, I said, I say the words of the Mass as though you really mean them, and where you mean every word, and, and say it uh, with as much conviction as you can, and take your time. And I shot that in the close-up. And we did that, and I, I wasn't sure about anything, but Burston came over to me and said, you're not going to hire this guy, are you? And I said, well, why not? She said, he can't act. She said, he, he's not an actor. He can't act. And she said, when I tell Father Karras this story about my daughter, I have to break down and collapse in his arms. And I need a big, strong man to do that. It happened that she had, was going with a big, strong man at that time who had, was an actor that she wanted me to consider. But uh, she said, this guy is about five, six. I said, you, you're probably right. And the next morning I saw the dailies and the camera just loved this guy. The camera just loved him. He looked great. He was real. And I went to Warner Brothers and I said, we're going to pay off Stacy Keach and hire this guy. And they said, you're out of your mind. What is wrong with you? You're crazy, but... You're possessed. Yes. <laughs> Something like that. They didn't want to do it. The writer didn't want to do it. Uh, nobody wanted to do it, but I said, this is what we're going to do. And that's what we did. And um, he was brilliant. Yeah, no, incredible. You said that Nichols said no 12-year-old could carry that film. How did you solve that problem, you yourself, with Linda Blair? Uh, uh, <laughs> Nichols was wrong because he had not met Linda Blair. We, we, had cat, we had auditioned several thousand girls. They were put on tape from all across the country by casting directors. And I must have looked at 500 of them myself, just a minute or two and then out. And it appeared that there was nobody who could play this part, who was 12 years old. And I had reached a point where I felt, Alec, that we couldn't make the picture. You could not find a 12-year-old girl who, A, would understand all this stuff, or B, not be scarred by it, maybe for the rest of her life. And I didn't see that possibility in any of the audition tapes. We started to look at 16-year-olds who looked younger and 15-year-olds. And one day, my assistant in New York said, there's a woman out here who's brought her daughter. Her name is Eleanor Blair. And she doesn't have an appointment. Uh, would you see her? And I said, okay, why not? Because we were striking out all over the place. In came this little girl with her mother. She was 12. And I, I knew immediately that she was the girl, instantly. She sat down. She had never acted. She had done those things that you see, like in the New York Daily News and these newspapers with girls model coats and little dresses or shoes or something. She had done that, but no acting. So she sat down with her mother. And I, she was a straight-A student in uh, Westport, Connecticut. And she was a, had won blue ribbons showing horses at Madison Square Garden, but had never acted. But I said to her, 
Linda, do you know anything about this story? Do you know anything about the, the exorcist story? And she said, oh, yes, I read the book. I said, you did? She said, yes. And I looked at her mother, her mother nodded. And I said, what, what is it about? And she said, well, it's about a little girl who gets possessed by a devil and she does a whole bunch of bad things. I said, well, like what? And she said, well, uh, she hits her mother across the face and uh, she pushes a man out of her bedroom window and she masturbates with a crucifix. And I said, uh, I looked at her mother, was smiling. <laughs> and I said, do you know what that means? She said, what? I said, to, to, to masturbate. And she said, it was like jerking off, isn't it? And I said, uh, yes. Her mother was still smiling. And I said to her, have you ever done that? Have you ever done what you just said? She said, sure, haven't you? And so I hired her. My thanks again to William Friedkin. I think you can understand why that's one of my favorite shows. Tune in next time for part two of my farewell compilation show. Again, my thanks to Barbara Streisand, Joe D'Alessandro, Elaine Stritch, David Crosby, and William Friedkin. Join us next time. Thank you. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.